0: Welcome back to the Spartan for Podcast. This is episode 26, The Spartan Regime, with Professor Paul Ray. As promised folks, I've been fortunate enough to have Paul Ray sit down with me for a discussion about all things Sparta. We go off into the weeds a little bit at times, but we know each other well enough by now that you'll know that's precisely where I like to go. Paul offers some truly fantastic insight into the period of Sparta we've been looking at over the past six or so episodes, that is the late archaic stage. It was a great honour of mine to be able to speak to a man whose work I've read extensively, and I do believe that I managed to avoid turning into a total fanboy. I'll let you all be the judge of that. At any rate, I hope you enjoy the discussion. Ladies, gentlemen, laconophiles all, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Spartan History Podcast today, Professor Paul Ray. G'day, Paul. How are you? Fantastic, sir. And uh, let me just say on air, as I said off air, that it is a great honour to uh, to talk to you today, and thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Now, for those of you who don't know, Paul is a classicist, author, and historian who received his PhD in history from Yale University. He's taught at various venerable institutions, namely Yale and Cornell University, and currently serves as Professor of History at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Initially authoring some works on ancient and modern political theory. In 2015, he turned his pen to the topic of Sparta. Since then, he has released four books on the Lacedaemonians, The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta, The Spartan Regime, Sparta's First, and Sparta's Second, Attic War, all of which I'm very proud to say I own and have endured immensely. Now, Paul, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume your interest in Sparta predates 2015. When and how did you get interested in the topic?
1: Um, I was introduced... To ancient history in a course on Roman history at Cornell University uh, in the spring of 1968. It was taught by a man named uh, Donald Kagan, who later wrote a four volume history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, And um, I took the following year a course well, a kind of double course with Donald Kagan and Alan Bloom. We read uh, Plato's Republic in one course. We read Thucydides in the other course. Uh, And then um, I was chosen as a Rhodes Scholar to go to Oxford, and I decided what I would do is follow up on what I'd studied as an undergraduate and do the program in Literae Humaniora. Um, At Wadham College, where the uh, ancient history don was a man named George Forrest, Hmm. who happened to have written a book on Sparta. In any case, um, I wrote tutorial papers um, for George uh, and then another uh, don at um, Balliol College called Oswin Murray uh, on all sorts of topics in ancient Greek history, including Sparta. Uh, and that got me interested in, uh, and I was interested in it because it was so different. Um, it was a world in which people governed themselves, in which there were public assemblies, in which there was something like a separation of powers, um, between, uh, a provo council called the Gerousia, um, uh, which is, say it was a council of elders, uh, where there were two kings, but they were constrained within a kind of Republican framework, not unlike the British monarchy, except that there were two kings. Uh, and I then went to graduate school at Yale and Donald Kagan had moved to Yale. And I worked with him and did a dissertation uh, on uh, the Spartan uh, general-slash-admiral Lysander, mm. who was the figure who won the Peloponnesian War for yeah. the Spartans, and on the settlement that um, was worked out in the immediate aftermath of the Peloponnesian War by Lysander uh, and various other figures at Sparta in tension with one another. Uh, so I've, I've been interested in it for a very long time, mm-hmm. and when I um, I went off to um, teach at Cornell, uh, and then later Franklin and Marshall College and the University of Tulsa before I came to um, to Hillsdale, I did a stent as visiting professor at Yale also in the midst of all of that, and I wandered away from writing in a strict sense about Greek history. And I did a huge book called Republic's Ancient Modern, 1,200 pages on uh, the history of self-government. Uh, it's still in print in three paperback volumes, one of them on ancient Greece, one of them on early modern political thought, and one of them on the American Revolution. And Sparta kept coming up. Um, and I came to see that Athens was a whole lot more like Sparta than most people imagine. Mm. Uh, it, it, we, we have a tendency to look at Athens and see ourselves. Liberal republics, commercial, and so forth. Uh, it isn't liberal and it isn't really commercial. So commerce takes place there. It's mostly between non-Athenians. Uh, the, also, when you get to the early modern periods, from, say, Machiavelli to Montesquieu, there's a fascination with Sparta. Um, They write about it a lot. Nobody thinks highly of Athens in that period, except uh, there's an Englishman named Marchmont Needham. He's the only figure I ever came across uh, in working through that period that um, preferred Athens to Sparta. Um, uh, One of the other things I stumbled across in reading Rousseau, I discovered that he set out at one point to do a history of Sparta. And we have fragments of what he wrote, and they're really quite wonderful. Um, So Sparta kept coming back uh, through the um, intermediaries of the early modern period uh, who were interested in it as a model for self-government. Finally, um, after I'd published Republic's Ancient Modern and, and another series of books on early modern political, thought, um, right up to, actually, Tocqueville, Uh, I was bribed by Yale University Press (laughs) uh, at the instigation of Donald Kagan to write a volume, um, and we worked out, the title was to be The Spartan Way of War. Um, I have never set out to write a book and written that book. (laughs) Uh, what happens is I set out to write a book, I start to write it, and the subject takes me over, and I find myself writing something I hadn't
0: expected to write. Sounds like you're a uh, victim of your own curiosity there.
1: Well, you, if you you get into it, you learn things, you get excited about what you learn, mm. um, especially what you newly learned. Uh, In other words, you go into it on the basis of what you knew. You write on the basis of what you have come to know, uh, which is a lot more interesting than what you knew uh, because it it opens up new horizons. So in in any case, um, it turned into a project on Spartan Grand Strategy. And uh, I To sort of frame that, um, I wrote four chapters, um, part of it borrowed from Republic's ancient modern, part of it new, on the Spartan regime, because I was persuaded that the grand strategy of any given polity, the United States, China, Russia, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, um, is guided not only by um, the need for security, which they all have in common, Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps ambition to have more, Mm -hmm. which many of them have in common, but also by certain imperatives that are peculiar and particular to the regime. Um, So I found myself making an argument against the, the political science realists who who treat every polity as if it's the same, Um, a kind of black box. Uh, And my view was you had to understand what made the Spartans tick in order to understand their foreign policy and what made them tick uh, was rooted in their culture and in their political regime. And the same thing was true for the Athenians and the same thing true for the Persians. Absolutely. So, anyway, I got into this and I found myself um, doing a history uh, of Sparta uh, vis a vis its rivals uh, and then Persia, the rival. Uh, And in doing it, I found that it was necessary to explain why the Spartans weren't all that ambitious for an empire. Yeah. The Persians
2: were. Yeah.
1: Uh, and the juxtaposition clarified for me what the Spartans were like. Uh, and also what the Persians were like. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I, you know, the, the the first thing I, I did was the the uh, grand Strategy of classical, uh, classical Sparta, the Persian Challenge. Uh, literally, right at this very moment, I'm back working on Persian. Yes. Because I'm working on um, uh, Sparta's Third Attic War, uh, which begins with the uh, failure of the Athenians in Sicily, the so-called Sicilian Expedition, described in books 6 and 7 of Thucydides. Uh, I spent the last year while teaching, writing chapters on that. And thanks to the coronavirus, I wrote more than I would ever have written without the coronavirus. <laughs> well, you know, uh, at the college, there were no public lectures to speak up, no department meetings, no faculty meetings. Uh, uh, we stayed open more or less, and all I had to do. really my only responsibility was teaching. Okay, you subtract all of that, all of the other things, and I had free time. And so I began working on it. I thought I could continue and continue and continue to work on it. So I wrote a section of about 200 pages on the Sicilian expedition. And in the last month, I have been dealing with the aftermath, which is um, Sparta coming back into the war against Athens and um, uh, a lot of the subject allies of Athens out in the islands in the in the Aegean and along the Asia Minor Coast uh, approaching Sparta asking for help in rebellion and rebelling against Athens but also the Persians re-entered the stage they re-entered the scene uh, after um, Say 449, they've really been off stage and they haven't been a tremendous presence on stage since 477. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, they're back in the game because the Athenians are weak. And the Spartans face a challenge, which is to say, do we ally with the people that we're most proud of having defeated uh, in the Persian Wars? And so I have to explain why they came around to this position, which was contrary to the the, the, um, policy they had followed for 65 years. Uh, And um, also, why are they open now to really eliminating Athens, which means there'll be this vacuum that they will have to fill, meaning Sparta is going to become an imperial power. Mm. Which mm. they have resisted. So, uh, the the larger story is the Spartans have to change because of the character of the Athenian challenge,
0: it, and they're very reluctant to
1: change. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, what um, they've what they've been working with for a couple of hundred years has worked very well for their uh, for their I guess burgeoning empire, I suppose, and falling into empire was the the downfall yeah. for Sparta. They didn't have the government to to adjust to the largest what,
1: what they'd done is they had practiced a species of isolationism. Uh, it, it's sort of very distantly like the United States, which looked upon its sphere of influence as the new world, wanted to keep European powers from re-entering the new world, uh, and thus the Monroe Doctrine, um and um we're really interested not so much in expansion as in their own defense uh i mean the united states was interested in expansion on the north american continent but beyond that not so much uh and the spartans their world is the Peloponnesus. and fairly early on after uh, conquering Messenia and subjecting the Messenians and turning them into Helots, which gave Sparta a, a laboring population to farm for them so that every Spartan was a gentleman in the sense that he didn't really work with his hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, to defend that situation, that set of circumstances, and the way of life built upon it, uh, they needed to control their local environment. And they did so by founding the world's first standing alliance, an alliance that goes on decade after decade, and it is limited pretty much to the Peloponnesus. They can uh, assert power, project power beyond the Peloponnesus using the forces from their allies and their own forces, but they don't need to do it on any grand scale. And they've, in a way, solved their foreign policy problem uh, with a grand strategy that makes excellent sense. Uh, and along come the Persians. And and the, the thing about the Persians is there had never been a, a grand, grand power uh, that controlled Anatolia, Asia Minor. Asia Minor, the closest you get is the Hittites and they don't really control the whole thing. Mm-hmm. They don't want to. Uh, they have client kingdoms, uh, but they they're uh, the Persians conquer the Near East. They take what the Assyrians had taken and the Neo-Babylonians had taken and they take it with a vengeance. Um, so they've got Egypt, they've got Mesopotamia, they've got Syria. They've got Palestine. They've got Iran. Um, uh, But they also add to it Anatolia. And that means they impinge upon the Greeks. So there hasn't been a power in the past. The closest you get is the Hittites, say in 1300 BC. That has been a threat to the Greeks in Greece. And so, the, the suddenly, uh, the Spartans faced a challenge that they had not foreseen and had no reason to foresee. It had been, a, it, it had been um, 700 years since the Hittites had been a force. Uh, and the Hittites weren't even the kind of force that the Persians were. Mm. And so, how the Spartans cope with Uh, this unforeseen challenge is the story that I try to tell uh, in the grand strategy of classical Sparta, the Persian challenge. Um, And as a prelude to it, I published uh, a book called The Spartan Regime about the period before the Persians come, the emergence of the Spartan regime and the articulation
0: of a grand strategy that made
1: sense before the Persians came. Yeah, if
0: I could, that's, that's what i really like to discuss today, the Spartan regime. To give you a little bit of background about where I'm at, at the show, I, um, when I decided to, to look at Sparta in, in what's been exhaustive detail so far, I didn't want to go just to the, for lack of a better term, the sexy part, the, the Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of Plataea, the Greco-Persian Wars. And I took it back for a really low resolution approach, uh, with the early Spartans, I guess, with, with the legends of Helen and Manilaos and the uh, Mycenaean kingdoms of the Bronze Age. I went through the, the collapse of the Bronze Age, which, you know, shortly followed the, the legendary Trojan War. And then into, I guess, the formulation of Sparta with the, the return of the Dorians, the Dorian invasion, uh, into the area of Laconia and the Peloponnesus more generally. Um, from there, I really tried to, to work through as best I could, the First Mycenaean War and into the Second Mycenaean War. And I stopped the narrative there. As I saw, that was a real period of, of I guess, political and societal revolution within Sparta. And I've been trying to, over the last six or seven episodes, flesh out the different facets of, uh, of the Sparta that we, we get to know a lot better during the, the late sixth and early fifth century, whereby its political institutions are really reasonably well formed. They have, uh, you know, state-based education women's rights around property inheritance are, are fairly mature. They have their own special and unique form of religiosity, um, yeah, which, of which music plays a large part. And in reading your book, The Spartan Regime, um, I found it incredibly salient to, to what I was trying to do there. And I'd just really like to, if I could today, work through that that formulation of the regime with you to help the the listeners better understand, apart from my own feeble attempts, about, about how it came about. Um, First, you write in reference to Heinrich Sleeman that, and I quote, he demonstrated that with regard to Greek legends, naive credulity is more apt to bring one close to truth than is a proud and systematic refusal to trust. And that statement really hit home to me with what I was trying to do. So if we could, um, just to get to the nub of it, um, can we start with the, the Dorian invasion or the the Return of the, the Sons of Heracles. How do we how do we pass out fact from fiction when it comes to to those stories about the original foundation of Sparta?
1: Right. Okay. Let me step back one step. Please. further than that, Mycenaean period. Um, the uh, you you get a representation of Sparta in Homer, uh, especially in the Odyssey, with a visit to. Uh, Helen and Menelaus by Telemachus, the son of Odysseus. Yeah. Uh, and at least as represented in that poem, which has roots that go all the way back to the Mycenaean period, there's no doubt about that now. Yeah. Uh, what you had was a certain kind of kingship there. Now, what you don't see in Homer. There's only one mention of it, is writing. But what you get from the archaeology is a picture of a bureaucratic monarchy, mm. uh, and fairly elaborate. And uh, we, you know, we have evidence from uh Pylos in Mycenae, from Thebes, uh, from um, Mycenae in the Argolid, uh, and from elsewhere. We now have evidence from Sparta itself about. Seven or eight years ago, maybe it's ten. Uh, a group of arch- archaeologists discovered a Mycenaean palace uh, in Laconia, to the south
0: of classical Sparta. Is this at Thar? Mm-hmm? is this at Tharapni? Yes.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, and they found uh, Myc. They found Linear B tablets. All the apparatus is, is visible there, and I. It, it, The Telemachus story and his visit to Helen and Menelaus must have taken place. The setting for that story is that particular palace. Um, There comes a time between, say, 1200 and 1100 when you get a collapse of Mycenaean civilization. Uh, No one's certain of the cause, but in Pylos, we have some indication in surviving tablets that were, uh, that survived because there was a fire that burned the palace down and fired the clay tablets. So they, they had some solidity to them. Uh, there's, there, there are hints in the tablets that they're preparing to defend themselves against an invasion. There is a legend of a Dorian invasion that is to say the return of the Heracles now who are the Heracles they are the descendants of a Mycenaean prince a supposed Mycenaean prince but these guys are likely to be real Um, um, uh, you know the Hittite documents now show uh, that uh, there was a Troy uh, there was a king there named Alexandros which is the other name of Paris, the son mm-hmm. of Priam,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that there are close relations between Troy and Achaea and the Achaeans uh, involving uh, dynastic marriages and, and, and so forth. So we're beginning to see in the Hittite documents indications that the Trojan War really happened. Mm-hmm. Now, are all the details as, as they are related in Homer? Surely not, but um, more than you might think. Uh, or let me give you another example. Uh, in Homer, in, in book two of the Iliad, you get uh, the catalog of ships. It's kind of famous accounts in which the army of the Achaeans is called out by units. And we have, we're have we told where each part of the unit came from. Uh, and there's a whole list of names Uh, from, uh, the kingdom of Thebes and we don't have, know of any of these places in the classical period, but in the 1960s, uh, they, uh, put in a new sewer in Thebes and in the process they found the, uh, Mycenaean palace, Mm.
2: uh,
1: and they found linear B tablets. And the places that are named in Homer are named in the Linear B tablets. (laughs) Which is to say, at least part of the catalog of ships is a Mycenaean document. Amazing. So, uh, the return of the Heracles. uh, There is supposed to have been uh, a Greek hero of divine descent, the son of Zeus, named Heracles from Tyrans, near Argos in the northeastern Peloponnesus and he is supposed to have gained a claim to the Peloponnesus on the basis of services that he did uh, and uh, it was left in by him in the hands of people who would represent him which includes the family of Agamemnon and so forth uh, but later Uh, according to the legend, uh, descendants of this Heracles uh, try to conquer the Peloponnesus to regain what is their patrimony. Mm. Okay, that is the story behind the arrival of the Spartans and the other Dorians. Mm. That um, uh, a number of Mycenaean princes in one version of the story, three in another version, two princes in the the twin sons of the third prince, Uh, having been prevented in earlier generation from entering the Peloponnesus by uh, a defense mounted and a wall built at Corinth, uh, where the Corinthiad is, which is a narrow body of land linking mainland Greece with the Peloponnesus, which is a kind of peninsula. Uh, They cross, instead of doing that, they slip across the Corinthian Gulf at its narrowest point, where it's about a mile wide, which, by the way, is where the Battle of Lepanto took place. But that's another story. Um, and, and thousands of years later. Uh, <laughs> we'll get they there. come we'll get into there. the Peloponnesus and they conquer Messenia, the Argolid, and Laconia.
0: That's the story.
1: Is this, is this uh, invasion?
0: Is this... I've read somewhere that this invasion of this this migration, if you will, uh, was re-represented or represented within the Carnia festival in Sparta. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. That 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 is, and um, look, if there's truth in it, it may have to do because it's reenacted every year in a festival. Liturgy is very conservative. Uh, And if there is some sort of liturgical service that involves a reenactment of the crossing of the uh, Corinthian Gulf, which is what the claim is, uh, you may retain a knowledge of your past Mm. by reenacting it every year. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And and you can do this in a society that is literate or a society that is literate. And they were certainly illiterate. Um, they're supposed to have crossed over and conquered these three places. Uh, these three places were all Mycenaean kingdoms of substance. Uh, they, they, the kingdom uh, at Pylos, uh, the king was Nestor. There's Menelaus at Sparta. And of course, there was Agamemnon at Mycenae in, in the Um What does the archaeology show? Hmm. It shows a collapse of Mycenaean civilization in these places. Uh, There is some evidence of invasion. Uh, And then there's an extended period when the population has plummeted. And uh, farming seems to be rare and the tending of flocks more common. Uh, And after um, maybe 150 years, what you get is in the vicinity of the classical Sparta, people settling down uh, in villages, which suggests farming. Mm. In other words, you've got land that
0: you're working. Just to interrupt you quickly, the, the settling down is, I say that it's fairly important to the Dorian people because in the The book you go into reasonable detail um about the possible migratory nature of the early dorians and you make reference to pastoral terminology used in the various spartan institutions and activities and i really really like that line of thought uh could you put a little bit of meat on the bone of that theory for us
1: well um the language that they use for their agoge is a language about the tending of flocks Mm. Um, so somehow that in their tradition looms large and look, I don't know if it still goes on today, but when I started visiting Greece in the late 1960s, there were still people who tended flocks and took them from one part of Greece to another part of Greece, uh, at different times of the year, because of the weather, it's called transhumance. Uh, and uh, uh, often these people were blocks, uh, and I believe those are people of Romanian extraction. So there was a kind of different ethnic group that was doing this. But I think one could imagine the Dorians uh, in this way. Now, did the Dorians conquer? Well, the the collapse of Mycenaean civilization takes place, say, eleven fifty. These Dorians aren't settling down until around 950. Mm -hmm. Could they have been the ones who destroyed Mycenaean civilization? Yes. And one reason is that the tending of flocks does not leave much in the way of an archaeological record. Mm -hmm. In other words, our archaeological record depends upon uh, houses and the foundations of houses. It depends on uh, the making of pottery and concentrations of broken pots because they do break. And pots are sort of the Coke bottles of antiquity. They last forever. I mean, the terrible thing about the old glass Coke bottle is when it broke, uh, those shards might be there for a thousand years and not change very much. Um, Transhumans doesn't produce those kinds of of leavings behind, uh, and and what is left behind either doesn't survive or it's so scattered you can't make sense of it. So it could be that there is a Mycenaean, a couple of Mycenaean princes who lead uh, another group of Greeks from the north into the Peloponnesus at this time. Now, the key piece of evidence is this. Uh, the written language in the linear B tablets is the language that is the ancestor of Arcadian, which was the language in the classical period spoken in the mountainous areas, sort of Wales. I think Wales are yeah, yeah, of, yeah. the Pyrenees and the Basques. Good analogy. Um, uh, uh, a- and Uh, It's also spoken on Cyprus, where in the Mycenaean period, there'd been no Greeks. Mm. So it's spoken by people who migrated out. Uh, A different dialect of Greek, uh, sufficiently different that there isn't continuity between Mycenaean Greek and and the Southern Greek, replaces it. And the Greek that replaces it is called Dorian. When you have a shift in language, you nearly always have a conquest, yeah. or at least a migration in. Uh, and uh, if if there is a large uh, Aboriginal population larger than the migrants, usually it is the language of the Aborigines that survives. People learn to speak the local language. The Mongolians conquer China and they become Chinese. Um, That sort of thing happens all the time. When uh, you get, however, a larger population coming in or a destruction of the local population, then it will be the language of the masters that takes over. And that seems to be the case in these three places. So, uh, you know, someone were to ask me, was it a Dorian invasion? I would say there was a Dorian migration for sure. Um, And something happened to the people who were there before. Now one other thing to be said about this, in the period between 1200 and 1100, uh, there are movements of population all over the Mediterranean. And uh, the archeologists call these peoples, the peoples of the sea. There are collapse of the Assyrian empire under the impact of these peoples of the sea attacking. This is when the Philistines come into um, the area we now know as the Gaza Strip. Uh, uh, And it's by the way, from the Philistines that that the name Palestine comes. Um, uh, And recently, uh, evidence has emerged uh, to justify the suspicions that have long been held that the Philistines were Greeks, Mycenaean Greeks. Wow. Um, the, The suspicions had to do with the fact that the pottery they used was Mycenaean pottery. Now, that... Creates a suspicion, but not more, because other people can imitate the pottery you make. You know, styles can move without mm. people moving. But recently, they've gotten DNA from some graveyards that go back to the Philistine period. And the DNA points to back to Greece and beyond. Fascinating. It points It points to the Indo-European peoples. Mm. Um uh, the, and, and look, this wouldn't be very odd, because this is when the Greeks move into Cyprus, and, and it's ex-Mycenaeans who are moving into Cyprus. Um, but there are these movements all over that region. Egypt survives, but it has to defend itself. Uh, and um, there, there's a collapse in, uh, in Central Europe, there's a collapse in Western Europe there's kind of huge period of, of movement. Uh, and this is clearly part of that.
0: Yeah, 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 I covered it in, in any case, I, so
1: go ahead. What you find around 950 is a small group of people living in villages uh, in the vicinity of what would be classical Sparta, the town, uh, and farming. And the stories that are told that survived mainly in a travel writer named Pausanias who basically wrote down what the local people told him when he came to a place and who um, was very precise and very accurate. Uh, We can compare, uh, he'll copy down an inscription. Sometimes we will have the inscription so we can compare his version of the inscription with the original and they're the same. Uh, this this fellow really worked hard to get it yeah. right. Um, uh, he tells the stories that were told to him. Now, he's coming uh, in 2nd century AD, so it's a long time after these events. But the population, there's been the continuity of population. And... Um, uh this is how they understood their past there's also been a continuity of institutions maybe a parody of the original Spartan institutions but um, the agoge continues and so forth at this time yeah uh, and he gathers the story of a conquest of Laconia which when you look at it from a geographical point of view makes pretty good sense mm. uh, he also, tells the story of the crossing over of Mount Taigatos. Now, something needs to be said about that. Please. Um, The Peloponnesus uh, ends in three prongs uh, with two bays in between, a bay here and a bay here. Um, One of them is Mount Taigatos extending out into the sea. Uh, and the uh, Cape Tainarum at the end of that is the second southernmost point on the continent of Europe. The only thing south of it is Gibraltar. Uh, and if you go, if you go out there, when you go out there, you will find that the wind is unbelievable because there's nothing between you and Gibraltar. Except open sea. Um, uh, uh Okay, what, what this turns out to be is two river valleys um, with their own mountains separated by uh, a huge mountain called Taigasos, uh, which is just a remarkable thing. It's beautiful. Uh, and and um, what the Spartans do, which is a real feat is to go over the mountain and conquer the people on the other side. Uh, And we don't know the fine details of it, but it's easy to imagine raiding parties. uh, And the war is supposed to have lasted 20 years. Uh, Now, no full-scale war lasts 20 years. So it'll be episodic. Uh, and it ends in a subjection of these people. Um, and then there are two generations in a rebellion. So you get the first Mycenaean War, yep.
0: and you get the rebellion and the second. And Sin- that's, War. that's your read on the Second Mycenaean War? It was more a general uprising of the recently indentured population?
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure this population were helots Mm
0: -hmm. after the first Mycenaean
1: War. I think what they were, it was a kind of community that paid tribute. Um, But after the second Mycenaean War, if the legends are at all true, uh, they turned them into a kind of subject population working allotments that had been
0: assigned to individual Spartans. I'd um, like to get to that, but if I could just first, <laughs> Paul, uh, just just between the the first and the second wars, as we've spoken about them, there seems to be some fairly tumultuous times within Sparta itself. I mean, we get legends like the the Pathaneni uh family, yeah. Tars. There's also uh, mentions of colonies on Thera and and Crete. What what do you see as occurring between those two wars within Sparta uh, to to warrant these these sending out of colonies?
1: Well. You send out colonies um, for two reasons. One is overpopulation. You really can't feed people. Yeah. And, and we, we have stories yeah. uh, that are in Herodotus uh, indicative of this, right down to you know, drawing straws in a family as to which brother has to go. Uh, the second way it happens is there's a quarrel. And the losing party in the quarrel agrees with the victorious party to leave, take people with them, and the victorious party helps supply them with the supplies that they're going to need to found a colony. And there's a tremendous expansion of Greece through colonization that takes place between, oh, 775, 750, uh, right down to 600. So there's about 150 years of it. At the beginning of it, you have a population concentrated in the Balkans and on some of the islands in the Aegean. At the end of it, you have Greek colonies uh, dotted all the way around the Black Sea, up the Hellespont, the Sea of Marmara, and the Bosporus. In the West, you have them uh, in Eastern Sicily and to um, stretch out to much of Sicily on the uh, Western coast of Italy, all the way up to um, Naples and beyond. Look, the, the, the um, Italian name is Napoli. Well, that's the Greek name, Polis. Yeah, Polis, new city. <laughs> the new city, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And a little to the north of there, there's Cumming. But there's also uh, the modern city of Marseille was the Greek colony of Massilia. Uh, there, there were um, colonies on the uh, east coast of Spain. Ampurias in Spain on that coast was the ancient Greek colony Emporion. It's very interesting how names yeah. survive um, uh, and, and you know they undergo transformations, but the core name often remains the same no matter if you know, subsequent peoples just pick it up the local in the United States we have lots uh, in many places we have Indian names um, that obviously weren't created by the white settlers, the European settlers. Hmm. Uh, uh, the Spartans send out as best we can tell, two, maybe three colonies. One to the island of Fira, sometimes known as Santorini. That was the Italian name given to it. Um, uh, And the other to uh, Taras, which is the modern town of Toronto uh, on on the boot of Italy. Um, And I don't doubt that these colonies really were sent out. Theris seems to have gone out around 750. Taras is said to have gone out around 706. Yep. And it's tied up with your Parthenia. Yeah, uh, This would be the sons of the virgins. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, and How could it be that virgins would have sons? Well, I will leave that to your listeners' imagination. Some, some um,
0: proto-Judeo-Christian beliefs there?
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the... the, the um, the legendary story is the Spartans are away fighting against the Vicenians, uh, and they come back to find their wives pregnant. Uh, and the thought is that the slaves or the helots of Laconia were responsible for it. And they're unwilling to share uh, their um, winnings in Messenia with these bastards. Um, and I use that <laughs> term deliberately and in its precise meaning. It's um, and so they're expelled. Uh, that an expulsion took place, I think, is clear. Yeah. The story behind the expulsion may be a story that people made up in order to explain
0: the expulsion. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, either Definitely. way, these these colonies uh, aside... Whatever, whatever was going on in Sparta didn't seem to be, be satisfied by, by the expulsion of you know, quarrelsome uh, you know, fellow Spartans no. and things like that. And the first half of the, the 7th century, I see there's, um, there's three events in my mind that, that really, um, I guess, get to the crux of the, of the issue within Sparta. You've got the, the Second Mycenaean War or the, or the Hellen Uprising. Uh, you've got the defeat at the Battle of Hisiae. Uh, against the Argives, and also the advent of the uh, hoplite warfare, phalanx style warfare at that period of time. How pivotal do you think that those three events were in the formulation of of what comes down to us of classical Sparta? Uh,
1: they're definitive. Yeah. Um, uh, look, classical Sparta is a hoplite republic. It's built on the hoplite phalanx. The citizens are all uh, soldiers in the hoplite sense, Uh, which is to say, uh, they operate in phalanx. They bear shields that cover half of them and half of the guide to the left of them. Uh, And uh, these are terrible shields for duels, they're heavy. Uh, they cover space that's irrelevant and they don't cover space that's pertinent. Uh, but they're terrific if what you want to do is create a shield wall. Okay. If you want to create a shield wall, uh, you, it, it's, it, you don't have individual champions anymore. And, uh, the strength of your phalanx is the weakest link in the phalanx. So it imposes a kind of equality and it rewards discipline, um, strength, grit, vigor, uh, all of which requires exercise. Now, farmers, especially in a place like Greece, get a lot of exercise, yeah. stones, among other things, um, sowing, uh, reaping, all of that. Um, but it, 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 it will reward a quasi-professional military organization that has really worked at coordination. Um, that's one aspect to it. Uh, and that takes place, I mean, we have good archaeological evidence to suggest that the hoplite shield, which requires the phalanx to make any kind of sense, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is um, in use in um argos at around 750 710 excuse me Uh, now it has another name besides being the hoplon uh it it, it's uh actually it's got more than one name Aspis is another name but another name for it is argolicon the argive shield Mm -hmm. which suggests it may have originated in argos which is where we have our first archaeological evidence for the shield. Um, the Battle of HeCI is supposed to have taken place around 669. Uh, that's in the wake of, you know, within 50 years of the emergence of 40 years of the emergence of this kind of warfare. Um, and uh, once you have this new technique of warfare, everyone has to adopt it. Of course, the the alternative. To not adopting the latest military technology is you lose, uh, and losing may mean you get sold into slavery. So there's, there's you've got a very strong reason for keeping up. Um, the Spartans lose this battle to the Argives, uh, and if, uh, as is highly likely, the Argives had a phalanx. And if, as is possible, Spartans didn't yet have a phalanx, that's why they lost. Mm. Or uh, they both had phalanxes, and the Argives were better trained. Either way, it makes it very hard um, for the Spartans to keep control of Mycenaeum. <sighs> because the Argives uh, tend to be allied with the Arcadians. And the Arcadians have territory that borders on the um, uh, In any case, the, the second Mycenaean War is supposed to have taken place two generations after the first Mycenaean War. So that would suggest um,
0: sometime around
1: 669.
0: So, you're suggesting, or sorry, proposing that the catalyst for this uprising was the defeat by the archives?
1: Possibly, or. Yeah.
0: Um, I really uh, like it. It's tantalizing.
1: Yeah. Uh, in any case, all these things happened at about the same time. Mm, mm. All right. To put a hoplite army into the field, uh, you've got to change your society. Warfare prior to this time was fought by individual champions who traveled to battle on horseback, uh, and the the, uh, the three hundred men who guard the Spartan king in battle are called hippeis, cavalry. cavalry. Mm. but they don't they don't ride horses. Yeah. <laughs> so what you've got is a relic, yeah. of an earlier time when they did ride horses. Um. Uh, All right. Cavalry can be defeated by a hoplite phalanx. And the reason is, you know, we have this vision of a cavalry charge plunging through um, the infantry. Uh, It doesn't happen if the infantry don't give way. There's a book called The Face of Battle. Uh, And in that book, one of the things that is laid out is animal behavior. Uh, If a British square at the Battle of Waterloo will stand up and stand its ground against uh, a charge by the cavalry of Napoleon, the horses will balk. Another way of putting it is you can't ride a horse into a wall. The horse won't go. (laughs) has a mind of its own when it comes to that. Um, So if you create a wall of shields, Cavalry becomes ineffective. It can hit you on the flanks, but it can't hit you straight on. So it becomes an auxiliary arm. It can't be the main arm. And uh, if you're going to have a hoplite army, numbers matter. So you want to put everyone into the field. You can. Well, you have to motivate them to get them into the field. There has to be something in it for them. You really can't make a hoplite army of slaves. Uh, The only way to do it is there has to be fellow feeling. There has to be a sense of solidarity among the men in the phalanx. Uh, And uh, people in the military understand this very well. I mean, part of what boot camp is meant to produce is a sense of solidarity among the uh, grunts. Um, and it works pretty well. Uh, so the Spartans have to raise an army in order to reconquer Messenia. They can beat those Argives, can fend off those Arcadians, and can defeat the Messenians. And to do that, they have to take in to the body of Spartans, the hoi polloi, the ordinary guys. And they have to offer them something. And what I think they offer them is land in the mm. uh, The right to uh, the produce of a plot of land and the right to the people who will work that land. So the hellot
0: system comes out of this. I think it's amazing, um, amazingly ironic that the enslavement of one people led to the emancipation of another and afforded them the opportunity to, to operate well, as professional soldiers.
1: I think that's often
0: often happens,
1: and has often happened in, in history, um, which is to say the, the stark divide between the free man and the slave um, is a warning to the free man that he could be the slave mm. Mm. if things went wrong. And in particular, it is an encouragement
0: to uh, bravery. Yeah, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And uh, I'm conscious of the time, Paul. Have you got time for just a couple more questions? Sure. Fantastic. I'd just like to, I mean, obviously things played out the way they did in the Second Mycenaean War. Sparta, Laconia, re-established dominion over Messenia, and from there it seems that they were on a on a path towards the the Sparta that would defeat the Persians during the Greco Persian Wars. But I just want to get to the heart of the political development within Sparta. It was an incredibly unique mixture of of regal, oligarchic, and, and democratic forms. Um, how central do you see the the Great Retra as it's been recorded? to the, I guess, the formation and the beginning of that, that Spartan government? I,
1: I think it's very important. Um, on my reading, there are three stages uh, in the evolution of the Spartan government. Uh, and they correspond to three institutions. The first is the kingship. The second is the Garcia. And the third are the Ephors. Uh, the assembly was arguably always there in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, if only you'd call them together to tell them what to do. You can yeah. see it in Homer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see it both in the Iliad and in the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, now, who were the kings? Well, originally they're chieftains. And, and you really have to think, think of it in terms of say, uh, uh, Aboriginal Americans, American Indians. Um, And the chieftains have to be men of prowess and judgment. And uh, what do they command? Well, they command warriors who live in villages and conduct raids. The second stage is described in Plutarch and it involves a curtailing of the powers of the chieftains by uh, men of good families. This only happens after you settle down in an agricultural system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Chieftains will exist with nomads. Um, uh, and uh, there was supposedly a list of the efforts going back to 753. <sighs> uh and when they, when, when, when the Spartans found colonies, Thera, um, uh, and the colonies Thera sent out later, and Taras and the colonies that Taras sent out later, there are only three efforts. That corresponds to the three Dorian tribes. But in classical Sparta, there are five Ephors, which corresponds to what appear to be the five Spartan villages. Uh, so the effort at the time those colonies were sent out, um, had three members and it came to have five members in its final form. It's a democratic office. I believe they're chosen by something like a lottery from some sort of pool. Um, the, the, uh, the ancient evidence suggests that becoming an effort is more a matter of chance than anything else. And it seems to be the case, you can only serve once. Um, if it represents the three tribes, those tribes are organized um, hierarchically, uh, led by aristocrats. So the original effort, if it goes back to 753, is aristocratic. The historical effort, one we know of from say the fifth century uh, is democratic in character. The um, Garcia is chosen only from certain families. So it's a council of elders chosen from the aristocracy and must've been that way from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what I suspect is that there was a revolution around 753. Uh, it was an aristocratic revolution. That sort of thing happened in other cities at about the same time. Uh, the Bacchiades, who were the, the royal family in Corinth, were pushed out. Uh, and you got an oligarchy uh, replacing them. Um, uh, so there's a trend in other cities. And, and it, the interesting thing about these things is that it, there's, it's contagious. yeah. yeah. One city makes this move and then people in other cities make the move, they imitate one another, perhaps because they talk to one another at the Olympic games. Um, and the Olympic games are supposed to have started around 775. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then the next stage is when you've got hoplite warfare. And, it, and the Great Retro is brought back supposedly from Delphi by the two kings. So it's a royal coup d'etat, and uh, how do the kings do it? I think they appeal over the head of the aristocrats to the common people, and the great retro gives the common people a role. And I think this coincides with the shift from three efforts to five efforts, from an aristocratic effort to a democratic effort.
0: But tellingly, in the Great Retra, uh, which I think you're saying the F 48 was established in seven fifty three, the Great Retra makes no mention of the F four eight whatsoever. So, does the Retra predate the F four eight, or it was just a, I guess, an oversight? Uh,
1: there's no need to mention it. Indeed. The Great Retra has to do with the operations of the assembly, uh, understand, and the relationship between the assembly and the council. Um, and so it, it, it um, you know, it's the Great Retro is not a constitution for Sparta. It's a, a set of rules for the operation
0: of the Spartan Assembly. Understood. Yes. Okay. And that would, that would yes. explain the, the reference Tertius makes to it in his own works. Yes, yeah. that's right.
1: And oh. Tertius, I mean, we have poetry that goes back to this
0: period. Yeah. It uh, goes back
1: to the Second Mycenaean War. And the other institutions of Sparta are um, some of it is probably inherited from the, the period of chieftainship and raiding. Uh, look, uh, American Indian tribes have elaborate rituals of initiation and so forth. Uh, and there's sort of tests that you have to pass if you're going to become a warrior. And that's what. Sparta looks like now it's bureaucratized in a sense, or it's formalized to a greater sense. But there's, I think, there's something in their tradition, historians, that they can draw on and elaborate. And um, you know, everything's tied up with religion. So uh, these are things that they have been sort of doing for a long time uh, as part of religious ceremonies. Uh, and then it gets further elaborated. That's how you get the ago game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, once you've got all that, you've got the whole system. Yeah. And the only thing that's left is to figure out that you can't keep conquering. Figuring out limits. Uh, and that seems to happen in the 6th century. There is a Spartan effort named Kylon. Uh, and uh, he's supposed to have invented the. Uh, the uh, he was one of the seven sages of Greece and is supposed to have invented uh, the, the phrase that gets repeated dain agon, which means nothing too much. <laughs> so that's supposed to have originated as a Spartan phrase. And uh, if, if my account of this is right, They certainly make a decision in the sixth century that they cannot conquer Arcadia. And that the real problem is keeping what they've got. And getting more, it increases the number of subjects without increasing the number of masters. And to keep the subjects in their place, you need highly disciplined disciplined masters in a balance with the number of the subjects. And so they shift their policy towards Arcadia uh, to a policy of alliance. And part of the game they play is they bring Republican institutions to other cities that have tyrants. Mm -hmm. Um, So they are um, liberators of a sort. And of course, the liberation involves a certain subjection as well. (laughs) uh, and what you get is a situation where you have an alliance within the Peloponnesus, excluding Argos, and including just about everyone else. And um, uh, what does this alliance do? Well, it protects the republics in the Peloponnesus, uh, most of which are moderate oligarchies of sorts, sort, um, broad-based oligarchies based upon Small farmers, small-scale farmers who serve as hoplites, And that's what the Spartans um, sponsor. And interestingly enough, you get a road system within the Peloponnesus. Uh, and it's a road system that, that is set up for walking but also for carts. And there's a gauge. Everywhere... Uh, the gauge for the carts seems to be the same. That can't happen without political unity. Yeah. You know, if you don't have political unity, some people will drive in one place on the right side of the road. Other people will drive on the left side of the road. Um, uh, when you get political unity, you all drive on the same side of the road because you really have to, to make the thing work. Uh, and there's only one way that could happen, and that is if the Spartans encouraged a uh, species of road building and dictated the gauge. Um, uh, and one of the tasks of the kings is to look after the roads. That's what we're told in our ancient sources. I think yeah. that's from sure. um, So Spartans are concerned with roads. We know that. Uh, and it looks as if they're concerned with roads Outside Sparta, outside Laconia and Messenia, as well as inside Laconia and
0: Messenia. Uh, and this coalition of uh, of cities, as you're discussing, is the I guess what we popularise now is the the Peloponnesian League, and it's it's amazing. I've always yeah. found that you know this this Peloponnesian League was formulating throughout the the sixth century and sort of led the Spartans to a point in in you know, around 480 where they could meet the Persians by land, and then similar things were. Undergoing, uh, evolutions were happening in Athens, which led to the reforms of Themistocles, um, you know, dedicating the, the mines from the silver towards building a navy where the, the Athenians could meet the Persians on the water, and it was amazing that these two city-states so close together, you know, both produced systems that combined could defeat the might of the Persians at the time of the Greco-Persian Wars. It's, it's
1: astonishing.
0: It's, yeah. Um, and,
1: look, the Spartans had been a great power for a considerable period of time. Uh, before the Persians come they have an alliance with Egypt. they have an alliance with Babylon and they have an alliance with uh, Lydia. Yeah of course um, yeah. Uh, that so they're they're a recognized power but they're not an ambitious aggressive power. They have what they want uh, and they simply want to keep it. Um, uh, the Athenians really weren't much of anything. Um, uh, They have a large territory and a sizable population. Uh, They've been ruled by tyrants. uh, And it's really only in the sort of 20 years before Marathon that the Athenians begin to emerge as um, a people capable of deliberating together and uh, pursuing a public policy of the sort that enables them to defeat the Persians at Marathon.
0: Yeah, with with uh, Spartan help, I might add, too, with uh, King Cleomenes obviously helping to depose the tyrants.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, it kind of stirs them up.
0: Yeah, in, yeah.
1: In um, and then uh, you have a genius in Themistocles. Absolutely. Who sees the Persians will certainly come back and that they come the previous time by sea and that Athens is going to have to have a fleet if they're going to counter the Persians, and then the good luck of the uh, silver strike at Laurium,
0: which makes the whole thing possible. Yeah, no, it's yeah. a remarkable story. It's great and look, it's a it's a fantastic story, but it's going to have to be a story for another time, as I fully yes. intend to uh, to tease my listeners out for as long as possible before I get to the uh, Greco Persian Wars, but. Uh, Look, Paul, I, I really appreciate your time today, and and you've really helped clarify a couple of things in my mind. You've given me a lot to think about there, and hopefully for the listeners as well. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? No. Go, no? no, buy the books. Buy the books. I couldn't recommend yes, them more. Yes, I mean, yes. they're they're well, readily- published by Yale University Press. Yale University and everything's Press. Everything's still in print. Readily available on uh, yeah. Amazon and uh, Apple iBooks as well. I'll uh, I'll put the full list of them up and locations for them to purchase in the uh, the show notes there and um, yeah look just want to say one last time it's been a, a great honour to talk to you today oh, my pleasure thank Take you so care, much. Warren,
1: maybe uh, we can do it again sometime
0: I would be honoured thank you sir it's me again hopefully I'll be able to get Professor Ray back on again in the future the man is a veritable fountain of knowledge on this topic and political theory more generally the show's notes will have all of the links for his books on Sparta and I encourage anyone who's interested to grab a copy and share in the author's wisdom up next for the show I believe we'll be discussing a very heavy topic with Dr. Jeremy Swist. Heavy metal, that is. I think I mentioned it last time, but I have no idea where this one is going to go. I've had a look at his work, and he certainly draws some interesting parallels between the ancient world and modern music. It should be an absolute blast. That app will drop on either Sunday the 11th or possibly the 18th of July, to be confirmed. Until then, dear listeners, you know the drill. Take good care, and speak soon. You can find me on twitter at spartan underscore history and on facebook too at spartan history podcast if you like this episode and you need to hear more subscribe to our podcast wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review see you next time